Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. Thanks so much for checking us out. At Echo, we are all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And today, we'll be studying the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the historic account of how the apostles received power from Jesus and then carried the truth of the gospel to the entire world. In its pages, Luke details God's brilliant and timeless strategy for re-establishing his kingdom in the world. It's quite simple. Jesus will supply power to his witnesses for telling people everywhere about him. Here's Pastor Phil Nauer. If you have your Bible with you this morning, turn it on and, and log on. And uh, we used to say, open it up and turn to, and now everybody's like, what does that mean? You know, so in whatever form you have the Bible with you this morning, um, why, why don't you uh, tune in there? If you, don't have, if you don't own a Bible, there's no shame in that whatsoever. It would be our privilege to give you a brand new Bible on your way out this morning. So if you'd stop by the New Here booth, um, we'll give away what we have. And if, and if we run out, we have, we have more. We have a limited supply, and then there's another limited supply after that one too. Um, And so we want to make sure that we provide you a copy of the Bible if you don't have one. There's a lot of good free apps out there. I I use Bible Gateway most often, but I use a couple other ones too to pull it up digitally. Wherever I go, of course, I'm a little old school. I like having my, my hard copy with the pages. That's just kind of how I was raised, but there's nothing wrong. Whatever form you have, it's more important to us that you study it and you read it and you think about it. It's God's word to us. It's truth. And uh, we want you to be able to have access to that. You also have sermon notes inside your bulletin that give you uh, a general idea of what we're going to be covering this morning as, long, as well as the verses from the Bible we'll be studying together. And something we're doing through the Book of Acts series is we're getting to know different people from our congregation by having you just come up and lead us in the reading. So if you were with us last week, you realize we kind of got into this part of Acts chapter 2 and recognize there's a whole lot of information. I got feedback last week that that was... Usually what I heard was that was a lot of information, and you talked too fast. So I'd like to tell you that that's going to change moving forward. I'll try and not cram you too full of information. Sometimes when I get excited, if you haven't noticed, I gust up to about 250 words a minute. So um, I'm I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Maybe I never come to you and say you need to listen faster. So why do you come to me and say you need to talk slower? You know, I could... Well, you just need to listen faster. So I apologize. I'll try and be more conscious of that today because it does you no good if I'm talking that fast that you can't hear anything I'm saying anyway. So, uh, so we'll work on that together this morning. Thank you for your grace, most of you, and how you explained that to me. <laughs> and a few of you were like, you need to slow down. So I'm going to do my best to slow down today. I want to invite Jackie Perry to come. She's going to read for us today. Um, so Jackie also is going to tackle this list of there's like 15 different nationalities in this passage. So we have grace for this. It's almost as tough as reading through the book of Numbers and you get all these lists of names and tribes and people. But we've invited Jackie to come and share. You probably need a microphone. And I know there was one here just a minute ago and it is gone. So let me give you another one. Maybe we can roll with this one. Oh, it's even on already. See, we have an amazing tech team here. Let me just tell you. Um, That is the job that you get in church world where when it goes well, no one notices. And when anything goes wrong, it's like everybody's heads turn around. Let me tell you, they have such a hard job. They don't even get to just like power down and leave. They literally have to bring every cable, every cord, every everything to make this thing go out of a 
trailer, who knows what temperature it was the night before, bring it in here, and by the time you get here every week, just make sure that it all works, and they do an amazing job. So thank you guys for being on it back there. Jackie, go ahead and, and read for us this morning. My name is Jackie. I've been coming for about four years, and I'm part of um, the nursery, um, youth care booth, and prayer team. So on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At the time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. The people from, were all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in their own native languages. Here we are, Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and the province of Asia. Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, the visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other, but others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying they're just drunk, that's all. Listen, it's no small thing to get up in front of a group of people and talk, right? Or read and read something with a whole bunch of different vocabulary words inside of it that aren't normal. So we appreciate Jackie being willing to serve us in that capacity. We're going to give you an opportunity now not just to, the, not just to hear the written word of God, but we're going to show you a short video clip. Some of you have seen this already from our friends at the Bible Project. Just an animated idea of, of what this might have looked at and refresh this idea of Pentecost before we dig in a little deeper. So check this out. And then comes the time of Pentecost. So this is an ancient Israelite festival. It's during the early summer, and thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims would come back to Jerusalem from all over the world, all these different languages and cultures colliding in the city. And the disciples are together in a house, which is suddenly filled with rushing wind along with fire. Fire splinters off into tongues of fire hovering over people's heads. What's this all about? And they about? start to tell stories about Jesus, but they're speaking in languages that they didn't know before, yet all the visitors can understand them. Well, Peter gets up to explain that this is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes based on the scriptures. God's plan was always to use the unified family of Abraham to bring peace and justice to the world. But the tribes of Israel had been scattered because of the exile. Now here at Pentecost, representatives from all of the tribes come back together and they're introduced to their Messiah, the crucified and risen Jesus, so they can now become the restored people of Israel. And thousands of them start following the way of Jesus. A little, bit of, a little bit of an idea of the visual that's going on there. Question, um, I don't know if you've heard of this word before. Do you know what a manifestation is? That sounds kind of spooky. There's all kinds of words in, in Acts that spooked me out, like even the phrase Holy Ghost. Like, like what person on God's PR team came up with that? Like, you know, two words that scare me, holy and ghost. Like those are two things, holy because I'm not that, and ghost because those are the types of things that hang out in the graveyards and stuff like that. Like I'm not, you know, like not down with that. 
But do you know what a manifestation is or what that term means? Have you heard it before? Not maybe a common term. Have you heard that before? Um, manifestation is an important word in understanding the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's an important thing. Um, a manifestation, I guess the simplest definition, is it's taking something abstract and making it concrete. It is an event, a sign, an occurrence, an expression that takes something that's abstract, meaning it doesn't have mass, it's not a thing, it's not, it doesn't have skin or flesh, uh, and, and, and it's something that makes that concrete. It is the evidence that supports that this abstract thing really exists. Uh, for example, um, you, if I asked you to draw a picture of fatigue, you couldn't draw a picture of fatigue, you'd draw a picture of a manifestation of fatigue, right? Fatigue is an abstract idea. Can you tell, though, when you're tired? Can the people around you tell you when you're tired? <laughs> yeah. And it probably varies from person to person. Different people manifest being tired in different ways, right? If you ask my wife, how can you tell when your husband is tired? She'd be like, he gets hangry, hungry and angry. That's when he's tired, you know, or um, you might start to doze off. You move slower. Your thoughts get hazy. There's different manifestations, but fatigue is a real thing, amen? You can get some of you are fatigued this morning, right? And church is not helping you at all. It's pushing you in the opposite direction, right? But some of you are fatigued today. Hunger is an abstract idea. If I ask you to draw a picture of hunger, you know, that's kind of hard to do. You could draw a picture of a manifestation of hunger. But would you agree with me? Hunger is a very real thing. Right? Hunger is a real thing. It's abstract. But there's different manifestations. Your stomach can growl. Your mind starts daydreaming about brisket or... Mission barbecue brisket with baby sauce on it. And I mean, and those of you that are not meditarians, you dream about other things, kale and <laughs> broccoli and the things I should be eating and that someday my doctor's going to say, no more mission barbecue. You're going to only eat broccoli. I'm going to say, I have no regrets, doctor. I've got my fill, right? Um, hunger is another abstract idea. One of the songs we sang this morning talks about manifestations. I see the stars, I hear what? The rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed, manifest. Tying in the words of David who introduces us to this idea in the Psalms, he says stormy winds reveal who God is. The stars display His majesty. Every tree, every forest, the thunder, lightning, they are things that God creates and He allows those things to make manifest this abstract idea of God that none of us have seen. We've not shaken His hand. We've not heard the timber of His voice. We've not gazed into His eyes. And that's always been a challenge for finite people to put faith in an abstract to us idea of who God is. And all through the Bible... You have, from, from the Garden of Eden, 
the whole way on up through Revelation, you have example after example after example of how God makes himself manifest to people. Now, here's the thing. Is God powerful enough and smart enough and wise enough to be able to hide himself from people forever? The answer is yes. God could make himself absent from us. He could make it so that you could never sense, feel, hear, detect, be aware of him. He could hide himself. And that would be to our great loss. But God in his love and his mercy for lost people is willing to reveal himself to us. And one of the ways he does it is through things called manifestations. It's where somehow he breaks into our tangible world and he provides us with evidence that shows that he really exists in ways that are very real to the people who experience them. Now, manifestations have absolute limitations. They absolutely do. They are not 100% effective in converting people. In fact, manifestations never convert people. Manifestations all by themselves are not sufficient for people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. You still have to have an understanding of the gospel message of who Jesus is. And all through the Old Testament and New Testament, there's all kinds of manifestations that we see occur. And one of the things the Holy Spirit is still doing today, one of his assignments from God, we read in 1 Corinthians 12, he makes God manifest to people. He helps us feel him. He helps us make tangible understanding of who God is. And I don't want to lose you here, but that's important. Understanding all through Acts, we'll keep coming back to think terms like manifestation, because while I will be reading stories, I'll say, what do you see here? Where is the manifestation in this story? There's another word we'll talk about in upcoming weeks, demonstration. You know what a demonstration is? Have you ever been walking through the mall and someone wants to demonstrate their exfoliator on your face to sell you a product? Why? They want to convince you that what they're pitching to you is actually the thing. It's a convincing way of showing you this really works. And in the New Testament, we read that one of the things that Holy Spirit's doing through believers today is a demonstration of God's power. A demonstration. And then there's another word we'll be looking at in Acts 2, and that's explanation. Because a manifestation or a demonstration without an explanation isn't enough. You could have someone going around healing people and never explaining what's going on behind it. And at the end of the day, everybody that was healed is eventually one day going to die. And if their heart's not right with Jesus, what good did the healing do? God didn't send manifestations as a substitute for salvation. In fact, he sent manifestations to attract people to the opportunity of salvation. So there's these group of people, I don't know that they have a name, but there's a certain type of believer who feels like the most superior experience you can have in God is understanding how God does manifestations through people and going after that and honing that, doing miracles, words of wisdom, words of prophecy, all kinds of things we'll study, speaking in other tongues. And they say that is the penultimate. That is as good as it gets. And anybody who doesn't roll with that, who doesn't operate in that, who doesn't demonstrate that, they're living an inferior life. It's almost like we're diminishing being saved. And we're saying there's something even better than being saved. And that is being able to live 
in this world where you can be part of God manifesting his power. And that's just simply not the case. In fact, the only reason as we read through Acts, the primary reason, I shouldn't say the only, the primary reason why God decided in the era that the apostles were living in, and I believe in this era we're still living in, the only reason God decides to display power that way is to attract people's attention to give them an explanation of the gospel so they can be converted and they can be saved. It's almost like salvation is still the penalty. There is nothing better than being saved. And these other things that God is doing and helping and equipping us is only for the purpose of getting people saved because we're in harvest time. Pentecost is the beginning of the harvest. Actually, Pentecost is the end of the harvest. At, the, at sundown on Pentecost, there was no more harvesting. At sundown, everything that wasn't harvested, it was time to plow it over, burn it up. No more harvest. You couldn't be sitting on the couch with your feet up drinking a cool Heineken on Pentecost morning while there were still crops to be harvested outside. You would be out there knowing, I have until sundown to get all of the ripened harvest in. And that's part of the spirit we get with Pentecost. So we've read through that. Let's look at this. Acts chapter 2. Verse 1, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. What that means, we talked about this last week, I won't reteach it, but there was a lot we gave you, a lot of information to help you understand those first five words, on the day of Pentecost. Everything about this passage needs to be understood. Where were they in the calendar? Like if I start off a story on Christmas morning at 7.05 a.m., when the door burst open and my seven-year-old and two-year-old jumped in the bed, you immediately could start putting yourself in the context of the story. That means more to you than me just saying early in the morning on a day of the week. The reason you can understand that is because if you haven't been the seven-year-old or the two-year-old or the one in bed being woken up, you at least can understand what Christmas means in this day and age and why the kids were bursting through the door on Christmas morning and what that was all about. You have some extra context. Most of us not being raised in the Jewish tradition don't understand what it means on the day of Pentecost. The actual, it's actually a pretty poor translation because the literal Greek translation of this is very clunky. If you just wrote it out literally, it would say, when the day of Pentecost continued to be filling up. What it means is that the day is beginning. Filling up refers to the harvest. They're bringing in the harvest. It's not over, but the day at Pentecost is beginning to roll. It's before 9 a.m. in the morning. And at this point in the story, every single Christian on the face of the earth were under one roof. Every single believer was under one roof. Those of you that are traveling with me to Israel in February, we will go to an upper room. I say an upper room. It is a room believed to be on the geographic site of this particular room. The room we'll stand in is 1,000 years old. This story is 2,000 years old. So we're not standing in the upper room. Jerusalem has been rebuilt and destroyed many times. But it gives you an approximate idea of where you are in relation to the temple and everything else when you're there. But every single Christian in the world is under one roof. It is the dawn of the day of Pentecost in their calendar, which means this is the day when all harvest for the year has to be complete. And they are to bring, to, the priest is going to bring two loaves baked 
with leaven, so it's going to be wheat from the field and leaven that they were supposed to throw out earlier to bake together and bring those in an offering to God to say, here is the fruit of our labor. You provided for us the wheat. We took our effort, the leaven, and added that together, and we present to you, here's the fruit of your labor. And what is God showing us? That he is issuing a call to us, that God to this day is still gathering for himself a harvest of people. We are leaven. We are sinful. But we're born again of the Spirit of God. And what is he doing in this era? He is sending his church into the world to tell the gospel to people. And the harvest we're working in is to bring those people before the Lord, before the day of Pentecost ends. Because how can you prop up your feet when you know that there's a sundown coming? Right? There's a lot more on that. We'll leave that for another day. Suddenly, verse 2. Suddenly. That's an important word here. Because what God does next, Luke makes a point to tell us they were not expecting him to do at that particular moment. Or else he wouldn't have said suddenly. It wouldn't have startled them. It wouldn't have surprised them what happened next. That's a very, very, very important word. Why is that an important word, Pastor? Because if it didn't happen suddenly, if it happened when they were expecting it, it casts a different light over this whole event it would almost suggest to us that what happened next happened as a result of whatever the 120 were doing. They did A, they did B, they did C, they did it for 10 days, and then when God decided that they had crossed off all the checkboxes, then he responded and it didn't surprise them. All we know is that 120-ish, about 120 of the believers were under one roof at one time. We know a couple verses later they were seated. They weren't standing, they weren't on their face. And when they prayed back in the day, you either stood or you laid on your face. So we don't know what they were doing, but they were seated and they were together. It had been 10 days of them waiting for the Holy Spirit and they were doing active waiting that Pastor James talked about. It's not like all they were doing for 10 days was fasting and praying, though they were probably fasting at times and praying. They were probably studying the scriptures. There's lots of other things that they did, appointing new leadership, drawing lots, making things that are difficult for us to interpret today. They were doing all kinds of stuff probably doing laundry at some point. They were sleeping. They were getting dressed. They were going away. I don't know exactly what they were doing. But I know in this moment right here, they were together, but not expecting God in that moment to manifest himself the way that he did. Have you ever been just going about your day, minding your business, and you have a God moment? It's almost like God saying, I can come to you when you expect me. I'm also allowed to come to you when you don't. One thing Acts will make you do over and over again is resist the urge to put God under a microscope and instead step back and look at him panoramically. And this has been so hard for me in my faith journey. I take so many of the things I read in the Bible and because of how I'm wired, I want to put it under the microscope. I want to figure out the formula. I want to unlock the code. I want to zoom in as close as I can to the finest detail. And the beauty is, is that God can reveal himself to that way. But there's also a problem with that because you start to reject things you can't understand by putting them under the microscope. And sometimes you can't reduce God into a, he either has to be A or B. When sometimes God says, I'm A and B. Or I'm neither. Or your categories are insufficient for me. And that can either offend you if you're like me and say, well, then God doesn't behave in a way I can understand. Or you can say, he must then truly be a God because he doesn't behave in a way my finite mind can reason. 
So, suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Bunch of details here. There was a sound from where? Heaven. So, Luke is making sure we understand this was not some random meteorological event. This wasn't the result of winds coming across the sea. This wasn't result of, you know, Jerusalem's higher up in elevation. This isn't result of some type of weather. This is a sound from heaven. Okay, it's a sound. Now, is it a windstorm? It is not a windstorm. It is a sound that approximates a mighty windstorm. And it's very localized. It filled the house. In other words, there's like a specific boundary that Luke is saying, this is where the sound filled and filled this house. Now, I could talk a lot more about this. I won't do much. But to them, why did God pick wind? Well, to them, it would have been an indication. You know, the word wind and the word spirit in Hebrew, it's the, it, there, there's no difference. They're the same. And all through the Old Testament, one of the words that is used regularly to describe the Holy Spirit is the word wind. So they recognize it came from heaven. It wasn't an earthly sound. This happens not as a result. This is happening not as a result of the people checking off a bunch of boxes. I'd submit to you, this happens at a time and a place of God's choosing. God chose on the day of Pentecost at that time to do this. It was not a response to all 120 people being in the room, reaching a fever pitch in their prayers, and then him giving in to them. Because there is this thinking that everything you want from God, you have to follow this formula of waiting and tearing and praying and waiting and tearing and praying. And when you get to this place where God says, good enough, he gives it to you. The problem with this is this. It teaches you that it all depends on you and it doesn't depend upon God. It sets you up for success or fail. It sets you up to feel like if I'm not getting, in this case, if I'm seeking God to speak in other languages and it's not happening, the only reason it could possibly be is because of me. There's something deficient or defective in me compared to the next person. And it leaves one person walking away who receives that experience feeling like they're good with God and the other person walking away feeling like they're rejected. I want to say something I'll say a million times in this series. The Holy Spirit was never meant to be the great divider of the church. He was meant to be the great unifier. Okay? And if we say that the only way you can ever receive similar types of experiences to what we see the Christians experiencing in Acts is that you have to do all of the work to prove something to God and then He'll relent and reward you. We're missing out on the... If you let the Bible be its own interpreter, the Bible has already answered this question. Paul tells us a couple decades later in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's verse 6 or 7. He says, the Holy Spirit distributes these experiences, these gifts, these manifestations to people as He wants. As He wants. So, Pastor, are you saying it's wrong for people to seek God for an experience with the Holy Spirit? No. Because in Acts chapter and Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 19. There are people who hear about this and say, we would like that. Will you pray for us so that we can experience that? Well, does that mean that God pours out His Spirit when people ask or when they're not experienced or when they're not expecting it? Which is it? Yes. That's like we're trying to put Him under the microscope on this when He's saying, just let me be big. Isn't it an answer that suffices for you that the Holy Spirit does what He wants when He wants? Well, that doesn't work for me. Then you need a God that will serve you. 
You need a God that will behave the way you tell him to behave. And that God won't challenge you. That God won't change you. This God says, I'm going to give you a bunch of different examples of how I do this. Almost like he's saying, I said this last time, almost like he's saying, silly people, you think I'm trying to give you a formula here in Acts? That's what I'm trying to do here? If I wanted to do that, Luke would have spelled it out for you. Look at what I'm doing. Suddenly, there came from heaven the sound like a roaring mighty windstorm. It fills the house where they were sitting. Let's go to verse 3. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. The actual, you, you read some other translations, the best way, if you unpack the language, it says it appeared. Okay. Didn't descend, didn't come in the window, didn't come up. It appeared out of nowhere. And it started off, the original language says it started off like a single mass of, I call it quasi-flame. It looks like fire. It's not actually fire. There would have been a problem. How do we know it's not fire? It eventually sat on each of them. If it was real fire, this story ends tragically, doesn't it? And nobody says, I want that. Yes, please, set me on. You know, we sing weird songs sometimes that we know what we're meaning, but I'm wondering what people who don't understand, you know, we sing about the blood of Jesus. We sing about setting me on fire, and people are like, this is strange. Who are these people? Are they cannibals? You know, what are they? Um, it looks like fire, and it starts as one mass, and then it separates into individual, like subdivides, into little individual tongues that looks like you know the if you think of the top of a lit candle that's what it, you know what he's trying to get here and it settles on each of them and again every one of these verses someone said i wish we could just stop at every verse and take a whole week on it and i realize some of you would love that others of you wouldn't but the reality is there's so much here um and i always feel that tension of i don't want to skip over things but i also you know <laughs> we got to keep we got to keep moving to bring a thought together. It's too much for some, not enough for others. But what I would tell you is what they would have understood is that every time in the Old Testament that God indicated where his tabernacle, his manifest presence was going to be, fire was involved. It was purification. And what we're seeing now, and I'm maybe they got it right then, but the Bible helps us understand later. What God was saying is where my, my, my presence used to be localized in one place. Something is changing now. Just like Jesus said that it would. And now what he's essentially saying is each of my followers are little mobile tabernacles. They're little mobile temples where God's presence now dwells. In other words, it's not relegated to the holiest of holies and only a few people can access it under certain conditions annually. He's saying my Holy Spirit now is dwelling with you and you can be carriers of my presence so again it's not actual fire it's quasi fire and it behaves in this way in verse 4 it says and everyone present was filled with the holy spirit and began speaking in other languages as the holy spirit gave them this ability and um, we can stay on verse 4 for just a second so everyone present all 120-ish, there were no exceptions in this story. There were no exceptions. Everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began speaking in other language, glossolalia, other at that time. What does that mean? They were speaking other known languages, not as the result of their studies, but because the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. This is weird. It's strange. 
This is very highly unusual. We don't have a long track record of this happening before this point. There's a couple things we just need to clue in on here. Everybody present was filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's interesting to trace that through the rest of the books of Acts. Uh, I'm almost done with my numeric statistical study on this. Uh, the end of my week got hijacked by some more urgent matters, but I was making pretty good progress by Tuesday uh, doing an exhaustive study of every individual named in the book of Acts who was alive at the time of the writing, and then answering were they converted within Acts? Or, you know, I'm trying to figure out how many of them were Christians. Of the Christians, how many of them does it say they were filled with the Holy Spirit or had some subsequent experience? How many of them spoke in tongues? How many were we unsure? Just trying to look to see if there's any patterns there just to go through it. And it's interesting. We know a lot of the names of the people. Of people. Jesus' mom was here. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is in this room. I mean, think about the whirlwind of her life over the last two months. She watches her son die. She's reintroduced to him being raised from the dead. He's no longer just her son. Now he's her savior. He says, wait in Jerusalem, and I'm going to send you what I promise you. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He'll baptize you in power. And here she is now in the upper room having this really unique experience with the Holy Spirit. And people begin to speak with other known languages that the Holy Spirit gave them. All those details are important. In this story, everybody present was filled with the Holy Spirit. Everybody present spoke in tongues. Everybody present, we were able to do that only because of the Holy Spirit. Now, I said this last week. I need to say it again because not all of you were here. Before they spoke in tongues and before the quasi-fire and before the wind, all the believers were in that room and all the believers were full of the Holy Spirit. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They had received the Holy Spirit prior to this occasion. When they were converted, those in this room received the Holy Spirit. And this is where our terminology has become so divisive. And I'm not going to try and go to bat with John MacArthur or Tim Keller or Charles Spurgeon. These are theological heavyweights. Let me just fall back on the Scripture and see what the Scripture tells us about how to interpret this event. John chapter 20, verse 25. I'm, just, I'm not trying to exhibit poor posture. I'm just trying to read here. This happens after the resurrection, but before Pentecost. Let me read to you. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Pause there for a second. You're about to see a dramatic change in the boldness of Jesus' disciples. They had seen the resurrected Jesus, but were still living in fear. They had accepted him as their Lord. There's still a little bit of uncertainty going on. By the end of this story, we see a whole different group, don't we? It's interesting. Back to John 20. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hand and in his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now listen. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And right here in John chapter 20, we have this beautiful example of Jesus demonstrating that at the moment that these disciples put their faith in him, and they turn to him, and they receive forgiveness. The next verse, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. 
And in this moment, prior to Pentecost, we see these disciples receiving, through the breath of Jesus, they're receiving the Holy Spirit. That at conversion, they receive the Holy Spirit. This is reinforced throughout the book of Acts. This is reinforced for us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul says at the moment that we're saved, His Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, is fused together with our spirit, and the two become one. What he's indicating to us is that when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ and we're saved and we're converted, that there is something that happens in that moment that we can't see with the physical eye, but it happens spiritually, is that our spirit becomes the residence of God's Holy Spirit. We are three in one. We have a body, we have a soul, we have a spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. God's three in one, we're three in one. We have a body. That's the part of me you can see. It doesn't have a brain. It does what it's told to do. That's my... That's my characteristics, my attributes, my appearance, my body part. That's who I am. We have a soul. This is the part of us that is tangible, but it's abstract. It's also sinful. The Bible calls it flesh. Soul is your thoughts, your ideas, your emotions. The soul can do one of two things. It can do its own thing, the flesh, or it can submit its thoughts and feelings to another operating system, your spirit. And the Spirit is the part of us that lives eternally. The Spirit is that part of you that when we get our new body and our new soul, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the, is the, is the core of what that is. And the Bible tells us we are going to have a new body in heaven. It's going to be like Jesus' resurrected body. And there's a whole lot you can talk about with that. Jesus' resurrected body do some pretty amazing things. We show up in rooms with the doors locked, for instance. Okay? I realize some of you, like, that is all you want to do in heaven. You want to prank people because you can just show up in places. It won't age. There's all kinds of other things. But in heaven, you won't struggle against sin anymore because what you probably realize is that even after you got saved, sin is still a struggle. It's because you have a dual operating system. You have the Spirit of God living inside of you, but you also have that flesh that's been in your soul the whole way along. And Paul, Paul struggles with this. When Paul writes in Romans, he's like, Man, I I recognize two things going on inside of me. There's a part of me that wants to do the godly thing, and there's a part of me that doesn't. And they're fighting with each other all the time. He's like, and I realize what I have to do. I have to take my my old ideas and my old way of thinking and my own, and I have to I have to crucify it again, and I have to bring those thoughts into submission to the Spirit inside of me. So when I feel like I want to do something, I say, No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take that feeling and bring it in submission to the Holy Spirit. And this is how I'm going to feel. This is how I'm going to think. This is how I'm going to act. Well, how does that all happen? And where does that begin? It begins when you're saved. When you get my words, not the Bible's words, when you get that new operating system directly downloaded into your spirit, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Well, pastor, now I'm confused. Because if they they had already received the Holy Spirit before Acts chapter 2, what's going on here? Were they incomplete? Were they two-thirds filled? The Bible helps us interpret this. But I also need to do a better job of trying to make this concrete. So I'm going to say it's the big idea today. I'm going to give this to you in words. I'm going to give you an illustration, then we'll keep on cooking, okay? The best way I can describe this. And where I'm going after is this. I see in the New Testament a pattern where there is, in fact, or there are, in fact, subsequent experiences you can have with the Holy Spirit that are different from salvation that, have to, that happen after salvation. In other words, there is a conversion experience. I've had a conversion experience. Praise His name. 
I have had a conversion experience. Every day I feel like I am still being converted. I was saved. I'm being saved. I believe I will be saved. But I can also see in the New Testament that there are other experiences that people have with the Holy Spirit that have evidence that it was definitely unique and it differed from their salvation experience. So the, the language I'm going to give you is this. When we're saved, the Holy Spirit immerses himself into our lives. He comes into my spirit. He comes into my day. He comes into my home. He comes into my work. He comes into my to-do list. He comes into my calendar. He comes into my imagination. He gets involved in my activity at salvation. I'm filled with him. But then there's, I'm going to use the word baptized because it's used, but as we talked last week, there's many, many, many different terms introduced in the New Testament for other subsequent experiences with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell on. They were filled with. Um, they were baptized into. And there's a lot of debate on which of those terms we should land on. I'm taking the approach of why can't all of them in different moments be the appropriate term as if we can somehow boil down what God does into one term. I I'm more captivated by the idea that this is a multifaceted possibility. It's a multifaceted reality. But when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, these subsequent experiences, we are immersed into His life. So at salvation, the Holy Spirit is immersed into my life and my activity. But what I see consistently, and the reason I'm, I'm choosing this is because what I, the, the difference I see in the New Testament when Luke or Paul somebody else points out these subsequent experiences, it's a change of activity. It's not so much in these moments that the Holy Spirit is coming into people's lives to help them do something that was on their agenda better. What happens is I see Him pouring Himself out in people's lives, sometimes in tongues, many times in tongues. But as I said last week, not always in tongues. Sometimes in power, sometimes in boldness, sometimes in miracles, sometimes in prophecy, sometimes in mercy, sometimes in compassion. He's helping those people come alongside him and do what he's doing more effectively. Let's not assume that everything I'm automatically doing is on God's agenda. It seems like what God's wanting to do with his church is after he saves us, he wants to gradually make a transition between us prioritizing what we previously thought was most important for us saying, I want to get on your agenda. Holy Spirit actually means parakletos, the one who comes beside. He is our advisor. He is our counselor. He is our comforter. He is our encourager. There's verses on all this in, in the New Testament, a lot of it in the Gospels. Jesus says it himself, John 14. He's a good, I would suggest Jesus is a pretty good source of information about the Holy Spirit. He tells us what he's sending him to do. But what I see in the New Testament is that God's primary purpose in distributing the Holy Spirit to his believers following salvation in pretty demonstrative ways was to equip them to do the things on earth the Holy Spirit was already doing. Two big ones, Jesus says. He is convicting the world with regard to their guilt. And a second one we read later on in the New Testament that no one can come and confess Jesus as Lord without the activity of the Holy Spirit working on their heart. 
What is the Holy Spirit doing in the world? He's doing several things, not just one thing. But two of his big things is he's making the world aware of their lack of holiness and their need for a Savior. And another thing is he is drawing unsaved people towards an openness to receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. So much so that the New Testament itself tells us that no one ever comes to a point of conversion independent of the Holy Spirit acting on their heart and drawing them to Jesus. And there's this beautiful baton handoff in the Trinity, and this is probably a very finite, and if you put it under the microscope, it won't work. But the way I see it is like the Holy Spirit is drawing people to Jesus, making us aware of our lostness, but at the same time attracting us to Jesus as, as our answer to that lostness. And the Holy Spirit brings that person to Jesus, and he presents that person to Jesus, and he says, here's Phil. He's ready to hear. He's ready to receive. And then that person looks at the truth of who Jesus is, and that person then surrenders their life and control to Jesus, and Jesus puts his arm around that person, and he marches that person boldly into the presence of his father and and that person who otherwise couldn't come into God's presence now is not being seen in their own sinful self they're seen as being one of Jesus's very own and Jesus says now I present Phil to you and you see how the Holy Spirit and Jesus and God all working together in this beautiful way that they're drawing lost people to him that's what the Holy Spirit's up to and Jesus is very clear I'm sending you out to do this it is Pentecost it's time to harvest And he recognizes that in order to do this, you're going to need some power beyond your natural capabilities. You've got some enthusiasm. And that might last you for six months or a year. But that natural enthusiasm, that natural gift, it's not like it would be totally ineffective, but it's incomplete. I need to give you something beyond your natural capabilities to give you the power not to just go around demonstrating things, but to give you the power to draw people to the presence of Jesus to see them converted. And you see that pattern all through Acts. You'll see a manifestation. And if you read it, and I have been. I've re- I read the entire book of Acts twice this week. And I'm trying to make notes of every time that this happened. Every time you see a manifestation, watch for the explanation and the opportunity for conversion. It's always there. It's always there. We get really fascinated, especially Pentecostal people get really fascinated. And look at all the miracles. But then look at what happened after that you skip over. Yes, Peter healed a crippled beggar, but then read the next verse. And the people gather around and says, and Peter, I'm talking too fast. Peter, sensing his opportunity, began to preach to them. Go read through the different manifestations. Go read through the... And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at the sorcerer and said... Because if this story right here in Acts 2 ends with 120 people speaking in unknown languages, there is no eternal resolution to the tension it creates. What God is doing here is creating, in some way, tension. He's attracting. Let's keep reading the story. Let's go back in the story. He's attracting thousands of people. Watch what happens. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. This is a huge, huge detail in the story. The crowd that's being gathered are devout Jews. Devout Jews. God's people with whom he has covenant. What's unique about them, we'll come back to verse 6 in a second, what's unique about them is that we get these details. There's two theories. You get devout Jews. They were one in faith, one in religion. Here's a huge detail. Because up to this point, relationship with God was primarily a monolinguistic and a monoethnic religion. Do you know what I mean by that? You had to be of the right tribe, of the right pedigree, of the right family, of the right race, and speak the right language to be part of God's people. 
or at the very least, you had to renounce all those other things and come into their culture. And something is happening here where God is showing that this new covenant is no longer about one race, one language, one people, one culture. That what God is now getting ready to do is multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-language. There's another detail I don't want you to miss. How to say this in the most clear way. I wrestled with this all week. There's 15 different language groups here. And there's this theory, and it's, it's a reasonable one, that God's purpose in sending tongues was to equip these 120 to have to preach the gospel to these couple thousand people that fill the streets. In other words, you know, we learn later on that these 120 were mostly Galilean people, low on the educational totem pole. The people, and people are kind of skeptical, like, obviously, this must be supernatural because Galileans aren't They can't just learn new languages. But there's this theory that outside of God giving those 120 simultaneously 15 different languages that they would not have been able to communicate with the crowd that was gathered. Then let me ask you a question. When Peter gets up to preach in a couple verses and everybody there understands him, what language is he speaking? He's speaking the common language they all already shared, which was Aramaic. These Jews lived in Jerusalem, or they returned to Jerusalem. At maybe one point, they were scattered in the, one or two reasons. It says they're devout Jews living there. Another translation, there was a devout Jews staying there. So we already know there's Jews living in Jerusalem. We know from studying their history that at different times, Jews had been scattered, and at some point, people moved back home. They had been scattered, and maybe kids and grandkids, and you know, they had gone to Babylon, all kinds of other places. You can read them. They were still Jewish. They still followed the one true God, but either they moved back to Jerusalem or Pentecost was one of the three feasts every year where all the males had to return to Jerusalem. And maybe they came back during Passover and because it was so expensive, they just stayed for the next 50 days and they were still there at Pentecost. It doesn't really matter. The reality is they all had a shared language, the written language of Hebrew, the conversational language of Aramaic. Or else Peter would not have been able to get up. It does not say when Peter started preaching, he was preaching in tongues. He preached to everybody in a language they all understood. Why do I say that? God did not give the 120 tongues so that they could communicate with people that they didn't know their language. They already could do that. Nor did he give them tongues to preach. I challenge you to find one time in Scripture where people use tongues to preach. It wasn't for that. Because they weren't preaching. They were communicating the mighty works of God, which was familiar content from synagogue services, which made the hearers say, this is obviously not blasphemy. Because no blasphemer would be quoting synagogue things in my language, in my language from where I grew up, in my, my home language. So what's God doing here? Well, the Bible tells us what he's doing. Verse 6, when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. So they hear the loud noise. So at some point, the noise that's going on in the upper room, the sound of the wind, maybe, the sound of 120 people speaking language, maybe, the combination of both, when they heard the sound, Josephus not a believer, a historian of his day and age, writes 
in Wars, Volume 6, that at this Pentecost, there were also earthquakes and strange sounds coming from the area around the temple. Now, we can't put that to biblical precedent, but we can say, here's a guy who has no vested interest in validating this experience, who says that there's some crazy stuff going on in this part of town. Now, how loud and strange would something have to be to carry out of that room so that thousands of people hear it and come running? What type of volume would that have to emit today for thousands of people in Perry Hall to leave their home and come running down the street to investigate? It was unfamiliar, and it was worth them investigating. Don't, and God just knew there's going to be a lot of people here, and he wanted to do something big, in my opinion. They hear their own languages being spoken by believers, and they were bewildered. That's an important word. Manifestation without explanation. Is not an, these were not self you know. The the speaking in tongues in and of itself did not produce 3,000 believers. You have to see this. If there was no accompanying explanation of truth being preached, which you have is this event that left people in a number of different places. I'll hurry on. Verse 7. They were completely amazed. So you have bewildered, you have amazed, and they start asking questions. How can this be? These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Now, it's something that's not in the text, but I don't think it's a stretch. I won't say that this is gospel. But it is far more likely that the 120 left the upper room and are now spilling out into the courtyards than for those 3,000 people to cram into a room we know wasn't big enough to hold them. If you walked into a room of 100 people speaking excitedly out loud, even if they were all speaking English, it wouldn't be like you could recognize 15 different languages. Something, some way, somehow, Luke doesn't think it's an important detail to record, and that's okay, so we don't have to know this. But, you know, in the Bible Project video, seeing how they kind of depicted it made some sense. At some point, it makes sense to me that the Holy Spirit propels these 120. They're not sitting in that room saying, look at this new toy that we got. They're not even sitting around. They're not saying, what does this mean? They just sensed in their heart, we need to get out of here and be with people that need to hear what we're saying. And there's 15 different, some translations had 17 different. There's all these different language groups. I don't know if he gave 10 people each one language. I don't know. Luke doesn't say. But they're saying, how can this be? They're Galileans. They obviously didn't get this educationally, but yet they're declaring the mighty wonders of God. So this is not blasphemy. They're bewildered. They're amazed. You know what their heart's saying? I need an explanation for what I am experiencing right now. And what God is doing is he's opening up this moment. The short window of time in these people's lives where their hearts and their minds are attracted but cautious to some type of manifestation of something they can't totally understand. There's skeptics there. There's people who are amazed. There's people who are amazed and bewildered. There's all types of... There's tension being created in this moment. We see people that look like us that live where we live, and there's something different about their life than my life, and I must know what it is. Let's continue, verse 9. Here we are, and then the whole list that Jackie read so brilliantly, and I've already covered that. Verse 11, they're both Jews and converts to Judaism. Okay? The thing they have in common among them is their Jewish faith, their familiarity with the Jewish languages. And they hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. That's important. 
Don't hear the people speaking in their own languages about Jesus Christ and how he was the promised Messiah and what they need to do to have faith in him. They're not doing that in 15 different languages. They're not preaching to people the gospel message in tongues. They're communicating the wonderful things God has done, which was a very Jewish thing to do. It was part of their synagogue. God's giving them specific language to speak in a specific way that is opening their brain windows wide open. He's giving these people the best. I mean, he, God knows how to draw attention to himself. And that's what I need you to see. This is all building to a climax. And the climax is the proclamation of the gospel. These manifestations were never intended to be a show in and of themselves. They're to draw people to a presentation of the gospel. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? Somebody explain to me what is going on here. Others in the crowd ridiculed them saying they're just drunk. That's all. And let's not be too hard on the skeptics. Because manifestations without explanation, is not enough to convert people. It's not. I will allow, but there are many times, well, Pastor, in my life, X happened, and that changed my whole heart. Yes, was it X that changed your heart, or was it the decision you made to follow Jesus as a result of X that changed your heart? Because if it's just a miracle, you'll run on that for a week, and then the next time you don't get a miracle, you'll run cold. There's a whole lot going on here. And it builds to this fever pitch, and you've got the amazing, the perfect. You've got a crowd thousands deep now that are experiencing something that is from God, but it is yet to be explained. And if the story ends after verse 13, I don't know we're sitting here today. But the story doesn't end there. The story continues next week. When Peter stands up, Peter senses the opportunity that the Holy Spirit has creatively generated through this outpouring with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. Hearts and ears and eyes are now open. The open, the kind of closed, the skeptical, and they're all there. And Peter stands up. You know what he does? He starts teaching the Bible to them. He tells them what this is and what it isn't. And he presents Jesus to them. He presents salvation to them. And what's crazy is in one moment, he makes more converts than Jesus ever did when he was here on the earth by himself. The same guy that 50 days earlier denied Jesus three times now stands in front of the thousands of people that previously he was terrified to even admit that he was a follower of Jesus. Now he stands up in front of them and says, you killed the Messiah, but he's raised from the dead and there's good news for all of us. What created that opportunity for him? a manifestation of the Holy Spirit poured out upon the lives of the believers that were there in that moment. I think I have a couple fill-in-the-blanks yet to give you. And again, I left two-thirds of this on the cutting room floor. I'm sorry, there's just so much here. Through his church, God is still gathering for himself a harvest of people. And God will continue to do so until the day of Pentecost is over. If that doesn't make sense, go back to last week. I just said that I, I see the place in the calendar where we are biblically is that we're in the day of Pentecost in a, like a universal kind of a way that what the church is supposed to be doing now is what the Jews were doing during Pentecost. They're supposed, they recognize the day's almost over. There's this imminent, Jesus could come back at any time. In fact, this was introduced, remember the ascension, the beginning of Acts? Disciples are all there looking at Jesus going up. He disappears. They're standing there looking. The angels are like, he's going to come back, and you better be ready. 
He's going to come back, but until he does, you better go. What did he tell you to do? He said, go and wait, and then get on with telling other people about Jesus. God is still gathering a harvest for his people. How is he doing it? Through us, through believers. Well, pastor, oh, I could tell you all about the church and everything wrong with it. Yeah, you and me both. I could probably do a better job than you could. But it's still the mechanism, the organism that God has chosen to reach his world. It's still the group. So we got to be on board. Number two, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. Oh, I said this already. Well, there you go. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to be the great unifier of his people, not the great divider of his church. You see, what he was saying in Acts chapter 2 was not trying to differentiate between the tongue talkers and the non-tongue talkers. What he was doing in this moment was saying, every ethnicity now has availability to God's people. Every language group is now welcome. If you read through even what Paul writes decades later, he's trying to go after, he writes to this church in Corinth, some of whom spoke in tongues and some didn't. How can you say that? Because Paul says, I wish all of you spoke in tongues, but even more importantly, I wish you, wish you all prophesied. In other words, he's saying, some of you are saved and you speak in tongues. Great. But even more importantly, I'd rather you speak languages people can understand without an interpreter. Was he diminishing tongues? Well, compared to prophecy in a corporate service without an interpreter, yes. Well, pastor, is it, is it permissible for us to speak in church today? When it's appropriate, yes. When it's not appropriate, no. Why is that so hard? When is it appropriate? When we're together and God speaks to one person and he encourages them to speak out in tongues and we all be quiet and we listen to them speak in tongues and then right after them an interpreter comes and that person interprets in our language what God is giving them an interpretation of what that person said and after we weigh that out, that it builds up the church and is a sign for unbelievers. Pastor, that's a lot of steps. Well, that's what the Bible says. Isn't there a simple way? Yes, prophecy. It's where you start in the natural language. Does that mean it's wrong to speak in tongues in church? Sometimes. If it's causing an unbeliever to stumble, yes. If you're speaking in another language no one understands very loud in their ear to the point and they don't know Jesus and it's a distraction and it's bringing more attention on you than on them, well, I like speaking in tongues. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel close to God. Great. The point when we come to church is not to make you feel good. The point we come to church is to build each other up and to build God up. And build God up is bad language. God's already built up enough for us to, to focus on him. Paul doesn't forbid it. He just gives some boundaries. He says, I never sent the Holy Spirit to create division in your church so you feel excluded if you manifest this way and you feel... At the same time, I have to say this. Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians... The sensitivity he gives to people upon whom the Holy Spirit has deposited in them the ability to speak in tongues. He wants them to be sensitive to unbelievers in church services. He does not say you need to be especially sensitive to believers who don't speak in tongues. He gives three groups that could be in their church service. An unbeliever, a believer who doesn't speak in tongues, and a believer who speaks in tongues. And he says we need to be sensitive to the unbelievers. Not in a diminutive way, but in the sense that when we come together, the Holy Spirit's trying to unify us, bring us together. He's not trying to create a hierarchy. But it's a little ambiguous or gray. Well, what about in those moments where it's 10 of us at a Bible study and we're all saved? What about in those moments? I think there has to be great wisdom, and I think there has to be great understanding in those moments. You would want those upon whom God has them speak in tongues to just be aware of the function and the purpose of, of what that is and to understand that 
as best you can and know when it's appropriate to use that publicly and when that's just for you and God. You, you have to have some wisdom and discernment there. I think he's also saying to those of us who don't have that gift, though, to say, can we just relax a little bit and be okay and make some space for people to use their gift? Can we be, I mean, listen, well, I don't understand it. Well, I love watching electricians work and I don't have a clue what they're doing, but I still am amazed by watching what they do. I can make space in my heart for someone to minister in a gift that I don't have without feeling insecure. The only time that it gets out of whack is if the person with that gift thinks they're better than you or you think you're somehow worse than them and all kinds of things. And then there's division. And the Holy Spirit's not doing for that. It's for unity. Well, pastor, you can't tweet that. That's not a short statement. Why do we have to reduce everything to a short statement? Point is the Holy Spirit came to bring us unity. And within this church, the beauty is we don't all have the same gift. Some of us do, some of us don't. But I'd like to think we're better together. Why do we have those gifts? So one can feel better than another? No, you have that gift. You have that experience with the Holy Spirit. You have that so that you can be more effective getting on the Holy Spirit's agenda and being shoulder to shoulder with him in his life and what he's doing. And that is carrying the truth of the gospel to people who are lost. And that's what we're supposed to be about doing first and foremost. So the three questions, I think there's three questions. Yeah, the challenge book of Acts is going to repeatedly ask you three questions. This is what I'm going to leave you with today. Have you witnessed Jesus for yourself? They're asking that all the time to people. Do you know Jesus? Have you accepted Jesus? I ask you that. Have you had a personal experience with Jesus for yourself? Not your parents' experience, not your pastor's experience, not your leader's experience, for you. Have you had an experience where you've surrendered your life to Jesus? Where you put your trust in him. You confessed your belief in him. You recognized your own sinfulness. And it turned your stomach. And you didn't feel deserving of anything other than being punished. But Jesus gave you grace and mercy and salvation. And you received that. Have you experienced Jesus breathing his spirit into your life? Second question. Have you experienced the proof of Jesus' power operating in you? I'll have to tie these next couple questions. I do want to, next week we'll look at briefly, what are those things that happened on Pentecost were kind of one and done things, things that happened one time. The quick list of that is, I don't know that we're ever going to see all the Christians in the world under one roof again. I don't know that it's supposed to be. I can tell you, it, it's not normal to hear the sound of a rushing mighty wind or see quasi-fire sit on everybody's heads. I think that was a, that looks like that was a one time in history thing. God didn't mean that to be repeated every time that someone has a subsequent experience. I don't know that 15 people simultaneously speaking in all those different languages, that's, uh, you know, that was kind of a, you know, we have to have a crowd with 15 different language groups present? No. Do we all have to be in an upper room? No. But there was evidence. There was evidence. Three of the four times in Acts, you see people speak in tongues, or they were filled with the Spirit. One time, it doesn't say whether they were Speaking in tongues or not just says, you know, Simon saw that they had received the Holy Spirit and said, can I buy that? It's possible they were speaking in tongues that time, but Luke doesn't point that out. And so what I'd say is it can be, like I told you, well, pastor, do we always speak in tongues, never speak in tongues, or usually or sometimes when we receive the Holy Spirit? I don't think any of those words fit. (laughs) It's not always, according to Acts, because there's at least a time where we see that didn't happen, and in Corinth there were people who didn't speak in tongues, and Paul encouraged them to be open to it, but said there's other things that are even more priority than that. But we can't say never. So is it usually or sometimes? Is it less than half the time or more than half the time? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Holy Spirit will do what he wants when he wants. And I just say, come Holy Spirit and do what you want. 
do what you want, when you want, how you want. And then he gives us wisdom and boundaries and guidelines, knowing that we're human, to know how to function in a body where not everybody's going to get the same gift, and that can create some rifts. And that can be challenging to walk through. But it can also be a beautiful tapestry of what God wants to do. Have you experienced the proof of Jesus' power operating in you? Question number three. Are you an active participant in the mission of telling people everywhere about the good news of God's kingdom? Heavenly Father, I absolutely love you and I adore you. Holy Spirit, come and have your way in our lives. Friend, if you can't answer number one, yes. If you say, I, I, I don't know for sure, for sure, for sure that I have experienced Jesus for myself. I'm hoping that this morning you have. I'm hoping that this morning right now you are experiencing Jesus for yourself. That he is making himself manifest to you. That somehow, someway, something you heard and something that you're feeling are working together right now to draw you to Jesus. And you might be amazed, you might be perplexed, you might be confused, it might be a number of those different things, but let me tell you what you're experiencing. You are experiencing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, tugging your heart towards him through his Holy Spirit. It's because he loves you. He's been seeking you and he's always been seeking you and now you're at a point of decision. Do you want him like he wants you? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to experience love like you've never experienced before? Do you want to be accepted? Do you want to have purpose and identity and meaning that are durable, that do not change with the shifting of the tides? That's all available to you in Jesus. And in what you bring to him is a simple confession and an act of surrender. And you can pray this from your heart right now, right where you are. Jesus, I believe in you. I admit that I'm a sinner, that there are things broken in me. I need to be forgiven, and I accept your forgiveness. I believe you're the son of God, that you lived a sinless life, that you died on the cross in my place, that you rose from the dead, that you're alive today. I surrender your leadership and control. I invite your spirit to come and live inside of me. I choose to follow you. Thank you for saving me. Heavenly Father, I pray over my entire church family, over my brothers and sisters, that this study that we're in in Acts will open for us a never-ending semester of the school of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives. We're all at different places in our understanding of you. I just simply ask that you diminish our inappropriate fear and hesitation about who you are and what you're trying to do in our life. You're not trying to possess us. You're not trying to run over us. You're not trying to make us look silly or like fools. You're not trying to shame us or embarrass us. You love us and you love the lost and you love us equally the same. And your plan and your mission and what you're about is using broken, foolish people like me and my brothers and sisters to be the transmitters, the mobile tabernacles of your presence of a world, to a world that doesn't know you. And I will be the first in line to say, if there's anything else you want to give me to help me do that better, I'm game. Help me to understand what you've already given to me and to use it to the best of my ability. And where there's areas in my life that you want to expand, where you want to teach and you want to grow me, I yield to you. And I pray that that hunger and thirst for your leadership in our lives will be contagious in this church and that the results of that will be multiple, multiple, multiple opportunities for us to be ready to tell the truth about who you are, to give a reason for why our lives are so different but attractive to people who don't know you. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. 
We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with Him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.